1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be in verse 8 again, 8 through 13. And this will be our final week looking at the office of deacon in 1 Timothy. So we've been looking at this for a couple of weeks now. We looked at deacons across Scripture. We took some time and looked more closely at this passage at deacons to try to answer some questions, look at some similarities with overseers. And now this week we're going to finish up by looking at some qualifications that are a little bit different between deacon and overseer and why those differences are there. And, um, and then I'm going to kind of end summarizing these two offices of overseer and deacon. So I've got three specific uh, things that I want to look at. Let's go ahead and just read the whole passage together, starting in verse 8. And then I'll go back and point out kind of what our uh, emphasis will t- of, for tonight will be. First Timothy 3, starting in verse 8, says this. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there's a lot of parallels here. They're not exactly the same. So when you look through this and you see not addicted to much wine, that's pretty similar. Uh, Not exactly the same, but pretty similar to sober and uh, not given to wine. Uh, If you look at not greedy for dishonest gain, that's uh, very similar to not a lover of money. So there's a lot of these kind of similarities. What I really want to emphasize tonight is a few that that seem to be pretty different. Uh, We'll look at three different ones. Uh, They're to be dignified. They're not to be double-tongued. And they're to be tested in order to be proved blameless. So the first one we'll look at here is dignified. We see it in verse 8. And then we see it for the deacon's wives also in verse 11. So this word simply means honorable. Okay. So dignified is honorable speech, honorable thoughts, honorable actions. It's someone who is worthy of honor. We would look at them and say, based on how this person talks and lives, this person should be praised for how they're living their life. So to help kind of define this, I think it's going to be helpful for us to look at what it means to be dishonorable or to show dishonor. Because we see that several times in Scripture. We'll see it in a second. To be dishonorable is to be shameful. And another way that it's used in Scripture is just to be common. It's not worthy of honor. It's just kind of regular. To dishonor someone is to speak evil of or to shame someone. But it's also used to refer to blasphemy, to blaspheme, to use something in a dishonorable way. So someone who is honorable would be someone that is spoken highly of, not just as a common person, but as a person who goes above and beyond to act in a praiseworthy way. They're honoring the Lord in the way that they live their life. They're not dishonoring the Lord in the way that they live their life. That's what it is to be honorable and to be dignified. An honorable person avoids those things that are dishonorable or that are shameful 
And I've got some examples of this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 4, it says this. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. If you skim down a few verses, Ephesians 5, verse 11, it says, Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So this passage talks about sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. But then it also refers to filthy speech or foolish speech or crude joking. So an honorable person doesn't just watch the things that they do. An honorable person watches the words that they use. It's not just avoiding sexual immorality. It's also avoiding filthy or foolish talk. It's not just avoiding covetousness. It's also avoiding crude joking. I've been in, I know I've said this before, but I've been in places where you see men who are leaders in the church and they're not committing sexual immorality and it doesn't appear that they are uh, greedy for dishonest gain, but their language isn't the best. That's to put it lightly. And this is out of place. It's dishonorable. We should look at that and say that's shameful for us to talk or to think that way. Now, these things that I just read out of Ephesians 5, we're talking about an honorable deacon, but what I just read out of Ephesians 5 is not just for deacons. It's for all of us. We are all to be honorable in our speech and in our conduct. It's not just out of place for a deacon. It's out of place for Christians. Why? In Ephesians 5, I skipped some verses there, 6 and 7. I'm going to go back to them now. Because of these things that I just mentioned, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The reason that this is out of place for Christians is because this is not who we are anymore. We used to be this way, but now we're not. We're made new. And because we are made new, even though we still mimic some of those things that we used to do, we pursue living according to what God has already declared us to be. I live as a Christian because God has made me a Christian. That's the process of being born again. That's what we were praying for for cult. That he would be saved and born again and that that would cause him to live differently. Sometimes we get that backwards and we say, well, I want to be a Christian, so I need to live differently so that I can become a Christian. And that's backwards. God saves us and changes us. And now, though we once were partners with the sons of disobedience, now we are children of light and we walk like that. So it's out of place for Christians to act this way because that's not who we are anymore. We're Christians now. The warning here is very sobering. If that is who you are, then you are not a Christian. That's what the passage is teaching. You were not that way anymore. Now you are children of light, so walk in the light. That's the encouragement. Christians walk in the light and bear the fruit of light. 
Deacons, therefore, should be dignified because it needs to be abundantly clear that all to all that they don't just serve people. They serve the Lord first. So the deacon is a servant role, but it's not just practical service. They're a spiritual example also, and they need to exemplify that. So that's the idea behind dignified here. Second one here is not double-tongued. So this word here, you might actually be somewhat familiar with. This is the only place in the whole Bible that this word appears, this double-tongued. Okay, And it's a compound word, and part of it you may be familiar with is the word logos. It's the word that we see in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the logos, the word. It can mean word. It can mean message. It can mean reason, like an argument kind of. It represents truth coming forth. So this word double-tongued is a compound word. And it's logos, word. The first one is two, like the number two. So it's literally speaking twice. You're speaking once in one way, and then you're speaking again in another way at the same time, but they're two different ways. And I'm going to give you an example of this. This double speech is to have a hypocritical tongue. It's to say one thing to one person, but then when you speak to someone else, suddenly your opinion's totally different. Could be that you're talking about someone. Oh, yeah, I think they're a great person. That's wonderful. But then you talk to someone else, yeah, you can't trust them as far as you can throw them. Or you talk to one person, oh, I think that they're terrific, they're so sweet. Talk to someone else, I don't like them. They're rude, they're jerks, I don't want anything to do with them. That's the idea behind being double-tongued. I think that we all have some experience with this. It's to be hypocritical in our speech. Maybe another example of this, two different types of speech flowing out of your mouth, would be in the book of James. We're very familiar with James chapter 3. There's a warning against the tongue, and it produces all these different types of evil. Well, in the midst of this, in verses 9 through 12, he says this about the tongue. James chapter 3. I'm going to read just verses 9 through 12. <clears throat> he says, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people. Who were made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So I think his point is clear. I don't go to a lake expecting to have both fresh water and salt water at the same place at the same time. That's not how it works. It's one or the other. And in the same way, we cannot walk around blessing the Lord, come to church on Sunday morning and talk about how great God is and holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then go around cursing people with our tongues. It's not who we are anymore. It's who we were. Deacons ought to have consistently pure speech. They should not bless God, but then curse people. They should not praise God and demean others. They shouldn't have church talk and then regular talk. I think you know what I'm talking about. We have the way that we talk around people up here, 
And then we have the way that we actually talk once we leave here. Deacons should not be this way, and we should not be this way. Our speech should be consistently godly. 2 Timothy 2.16 warns about irreverent babble, which will spread like gangrene. And he mentions a couple of people specifically and says these people are doing this and causing this division. With our words, we can do a lot of damage. Likewise, deacons, with their words, can do tremendous damage to the body of Christ. That's why this qualification is here. They cannot be double-tongued because they are in a great position to influence. Here's the third one. So there's dignified, not double-tongued. The third one here, it says... In verse 10, let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So one question we might ask here is, why does a deacon have to be tested and an overseer doesn't have to be tested? I think that's a fair question. Well, look at the nature of the test. What's the reason for them being tested? It says, let them serve as deacons. If they prove themselves blameless. So when we think about the office of overseer, you can go back and look at this for yourself if you'd like. It's, it's chapter 3 right above this, verses 1 through 7. Look through those qualifications. And one thing you'll notice is that their re- reputation, according to those qualifications, is already established. It ends by saying they're to be well thought of by outsiders in verse 7. Early on, we see they're to be above reproach. They're not supposed to be recent converts. These qualifications list and describe someone who is already well known. Their testing period, so to speak, has already taken place. They're above reproach. They're not just getting by. They are so far avoiding the line that they're free from accusation. They're not recent converts. They've been around for a while. Everybody knows these people. They're staples in the church. They're well thought of by outsiders. But for a deacon, it's not quite the same. It's different. A deacon can be a recent convert. We could have a deacon who was, conver- who was converted very recently. And for this reason, a period of testing might be necessary. Later in the book, Paul tells Timothy not to be hasty in the laying on of hands. I think it's in chapter 5. We'll get there eventually. But he tells them, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. And his reasoning is there's going to be some good things that you can't keep from coming to light. But there will be some bad things that you can't keep from coming to light. And if you are hasty in laying on of hands and ordaining someone, you may regret it. But if you wait and wait for these things to come out, you won't regret it. It could be that you notice something you wouldn't have noticed before. And it could be good or it could be bad. So a deacon should go through this period of testing. That's why Paul gives this qualification here. A deacon who isn't a seasoned Christian needs time to show these things. So I want to kind of spend the rest of our time tonight looking at and kind of consolidating everything we've looked at in the past few weeks. Okay, I'm going to kind of um, combine some different things that we've mentioned and highlighted I'm going to answer four questions for us because I think it's helpful for us moving forward. I've talked with the deacons, and one thing that's come up is, hey, we might need to look at 
uh, ordaining some deacons soon. And so before we do that, we need to be clear on what a deacon is, what a deacon does, why we need deacons, and how do we obtain them. Those are the four questions we're going to look at. Number one, what is a deacon? Based on the past three weeks, a deacon, according to what Scripture teaches, is a godly, spiritual, ordained servant who is honorable in word and deed. A deacon is a godly, spiritual, ordained servant who is honorable in word and deed. We see in Acts chapter 6, the church selected these men, they brought them forward to the apostles, and the apostles laid hands on them and prayed and set them apart for that work. This wasn't just, hey, we need someone to move chairs in just a little bit, though that may have been something that something like that would do. But that wasn't just it. It was, hey, we need these servants, but these need to be godly men, and they need to be set aside for this work. So they brought them up and they laid their hands on them and ordained them and said, you are godly men who are now set apart to serve the church. It's a high calling. Here's what a deacon is not. A deacon is not, number one, like the rest of the world. A deacon is honorable and godly and not double-tongued and not addicted to much wine and not greedy for selfish gain. A deacon is focused on honoring the Lord. And so a deacon flees from sin and seeks to honor Christ. The second thing a deacon is not. A deacon is not an overseer. They're two offices. So we do the church a disservice when we take these two offices and start to blend them together into one. When scripture separates them. Deacon is not an overseer. An overseer is not a deacon. That's not to say that some of their responsibilities don't sometimes line up or match, but they're two distinct offices, and it's helpful for us to remember that moving forward. So number two, what does a deacon do? A deacon serves the physical needs of the church so that the overseers can serve the spiritual needs of the church. So when we look at Acts chapter 6 again, we see that the apostles said it's not good for us to give up preaching of the word and prayer in order to wait on these tables. But it is important. So let's select godly men who can do this. So these men were selected to free the apostles up from something that was important, but to free them up so that they could devote their time to prayer and to right studying and teaching of the word of God. So the deacon, what does he do? He serves the physical needs of the church so that the overseers can serve the spiritual needs of the church. What does a deacon not do? A deacon does not make decisions for the direction of the church. This is the role of the overseer. And I hope that that's been clear in our study The overseer is to manage his household well so that he can manage the church. The deacon is to manage his household well because he's going to be looked highly upon by outsiders. The deacon does not make decisions for the direction of the church. That's what the overseer does. 
Well, number three, why do we need deacons? Overseers, pastors, elders, all the same thing, are primarily concerned with the ministry of the word of God and prayer. But secondarily, they are also concerned with directing the church and looking at all the interconnected parts and making sure that they're functioning together well and there's cohesiveness. This is vital. A deacon is primarily concerned with the daily operations and needs of the church and its members. Thinking back to Acts 6 again. Why were they sought out? There were members in the church who were being mistreated. Is really what it was. They were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And it wasn't right. This is a big deal. I like that the apostles, they could have said, eh, tables aren't important, stop bothering us with this and just let me preach the word. But they didn't say that. They said, this is important. So we need to find men, godly men, who can do this and do it right and make godly decisions for this. So church, you gather together and select seven men. We think that's what we'll need and bring them to us. And then we will lay hands on them and set them aside for this task. So this is an important role. It's important enough for them to select godly men, not just random people, to ordain them in order to take care of the issues that were present. If they hadn't been ordained, a lot of people in the church would not have felt the love of Christ. The church would have been divided. There would have been those receiving special treatment and then those that weren't. We see the effects today of what happens when churches divide. I came from DeRitter, Louisiana, from a church there. Before I went to that church, I was in the process of being interviewed, and I found out an interesting piece of information. DeRitter is in the Guinness Book of World Records. Well, that's cool. What for? They have the most denominations per capita. That's, their, that's, the, that's what they have set a record for. I don't think second place would be far behind. I don't think third place would be far behind. We can drive around here right now. In fact, I might just issue that as a challenge. Next time you're driving around Gina, it doesn't take long. Let's just count how many churches we see that split because, well, a group of people really got their feelings hurt because of something. Deacons help provide the glue that holds a church together. That's what deacons do. How do they do that? The overseers help do that through spiritual direction. The deacons do that through practical examples of God's love. Serving where the needs arise. The deacons step in and do that. So the deacons and overseers are working together to help the church operate, and they are both vital. We need deacons, and we need godly deacons. Very important. They help the pastors keep the main thing the main thing by taking care of other important issues. And they help make sure nothing detracts from the main thing. 
If there's all these underlying issues in the church, and nobody going to be paying attention to the preaching of God's word. We're going to be thinking about, I'm still really aggravated at that guy right over there. It's vital. So we need deacons. Number four. How do we obtain deacons? Number one, what we've seen, the church selects deacons based on the requirements here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the book of Acts, the apostles came together and the apostles didn't pick the deacons. They gathered the whole number of the church together, the believers, and they said, church, select among yourselves seven men who would be good for this task, men who are filled with the spirit. The church appoints Deacons. It sounds a lot like what we do. We gather together. We have these names we lift up. But how do they do it? They do it according to these qualifications here that we have in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a church-wide process. The selection of deacons should not occur among a select few people. We are a congregationalist church. What that means is that we don't refer to a higher-up ecclesiastical body to tell us what we are to do and who we are to elect. We determine that. Christ is our Lord. We seek him in prayer and we say, God, would you show us what to do here, including the selection of deacons? And sometimes we try to skirt that. Well, sometimes what we try to do is skirt these qualifications and make exceptions and say, well, this guy hits all these other ones. You know, it could be sometimes... You know, he's not really the best manager of his children and things, and you know, this. And we kind of make light of certain things here. This doesn't detract from how valuable this brother is. It doesn't detract from how godly he is. It just means he doesn't qualify. That doesn't mean that we hate this person or that we don't. It's a high calling. It's okay to look at a candidate and say, Brother, we don't think you qualify, and here's why. And if this guy really is godly and spiritual, he will listen to that and say, I think that's fair, and I think you're right, and I want to work on this, and I would like to be considered next time. And Lord willing, a year down the road, that is going to be one godly, servant-minded deacon, and he's going to be humble. That's the kind of guy you want serving. We don't need to skirt the qualifications. So number one, the church selects deacons based on the requirements in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Church-wide process. Number two, once the church selects candidates, there is a testing period. We saw that in our passage today. They must be tested first to prove blameless. There's some flexibility on what this looks like. 1 Timothy doesn't tell us you're going to have X number of weeks and you're going to do that. It doesn't give us all that. It just says there's a testing period. At a minimum, I think it's safe to say this should happen during the testing period. Number one, at a minimum, there needs to be some type of an interview with the candidate asking about the candidate's personal life and their faith in Christ. They need to hold the faith with a clear conscience. They need to be spiritual people. We need to know about their personal life, their home life, their struggles. These things need to come up, and the best type of thing to happen for that is an interview. Second, at a minimum, this should probably include some length of period for observation to examine 
this person's spirituality and their passion to serve. This is an examination of their life. Hey, this person's being considered. Okay, we need to keep a close eye on this guy. That's great. Praise the Lord. Let's see how he handles people. Let's see how he serves. Let's see how he speaks to people. Let's see how he interacts with others. This is a minimum, I would say, based on the qualifications that we see. But I think it's also fair to say that in addition to this, there could be a period of time where the candidate possibly serves before being ordained as part of the testing process. And after a predetermined amount of time, that deacon is officially ordained. Churches do this differently. There's some flexibility here. However we do the testing period, there should be a testing period because it gives it to us. <laughs> well, we can't just, oh, we don't have a good idea. Well, we got to come up with something. It's in there. Okay. Here's the third thing that happens. So the church selects deacons based on these requirements. There's a testing period once we have the candidates. Number three, after the period of testing, the overseers of the church ordain the candidates as deacon by the laying on of hands and prayer, setting them apart for that ministry. In Acts chapter 6, the instructions were from the apostles, select these men, bring them to us, and then we will lay hands on them and set them apart. So once the church selects these candidates, there's been this examination period. They bring them forth, and then the overseers, the pastors of the church, they gather together and they ordain these men and they set them apart. I can still remember the day that I was ordained for ministry. I was sitting in a chair. We had several candidates lined up, some for deacons, some for uh, being ministers of the gospel. I was seated in the chair, and the other ordained men of the church lined up, and they walked behind us. And I bowed, and I had my eyes closed. And each man, a lot of them I knew personally, came up behind me, put their hands on my shoulder, and got down real close to my ear and whispered a prayer for me. And I will not forget some of the things that those men prayed for me that day. It's very powerful. It's also very sobering to hear them say, God, this man is going to be responsible for many things in your church. Do not let him be unfaithful. Do not let him slack on his responsibilities. Those words ring in my mind. And the deacon is no less ordained than an overseer. It's a high calling. So after this period of testing, the pastors of the church ordain these deacons and pray over these deacons so that they might be set apart for a special work. God has given us as a church a great privilege and responsibility. We're to take the gospel to the world. We specifically here in this church are to be representatives of the gospel here in Gina. Like a lighthouse. And people come to us and we share the light. But we are not to stay here. We are to move out and to do all of these things. That requires oversight, direction, prayer, preaching of the word of God, singing of the word of God, setting up tables in the fellowship hall, moving tables out to the park for Howdy Neighbor Day. Whatever things we do, there's a whole bunch of things that go on here at this church. And if we are to handle all of that in a biblical, godly, effective way, we need both overseers, elders, pastors, all the same. We need both overseers 
and deacons for this work. God has instructed us on what it should look like. And if we ignore that, we are being unbiblical. My desire is for our church to be as biblical as possible in our practices. And where we don't have clarity, like the testing process, exactly what should that look like? Well, we'll come together and figure it out. But the things that it is clear about, we better be sure that we're doing those things. God is directed as to how it should happen, and we need to listen. The elders are the ordained pastors of the church, and they provide spiritual oversight and direction. The deacons are the ordained servants of the church, and they take care of important physical needs so that the pastors can oversee the church through prayer and a proper handling of the word. Church, let us regularly pray that the Lord might help us to function in a healthy, biblical way as we move forward with the mission that God has given us to carry out. Amen? Let's pray to that effect right now. God, we want to honor you in everything that we do here. And sometimes it seems like your word, we wish it was more clear on things and exactly how you want things done. And we ask you for wisdom to help us to be able to navigate through those things. But especially on these issues, Father, that you have made clear, these qualifications, these responsibilities, how these things are to be handled. God, we want a biblical church. Even if it doesn't look like some other churches, even if it seems strange or foreign to us, we want to be biblical. We thank you that you've given us your word. We ask that you would help us to be faithful to your word as we move forward with ordaining deacons and possibly overseers in our church. We need your guidance and direction on these things. Father, we want a healthy church. We don't just want to be properly structured, but we want to be filled with spiritual people who are feeding on Christ daily. Through consuming your word, through prayer, through fasting, seeking you. Father, we want to be healthy. Would you grant that we would be a healthy church? We want to be a spiritual church, Father. We want to be godly. We want the community to look to us and to see people who are honorable and dignified, not double-tongued, not slanderous, not gossips, not greedy for dishonest gain. Father, we want to be these shining examples so that others might see us and see confirmed in our lives the truth of the gospel. God, we want servants for our church. We want godly men whom you will send to us so that we might set them aside and ordain them for a special ministry of service. Would you send these men to us? Would you cause them to rise to the top? That it would be overwhelmingly obvious who these spirit-filled men are. That you would fill them with strength and energy and a desire to serve your people. 
Father, we want shepherds for our church. We want overseers, elders that can lead our church, that can direct and oversee the ministries of the church, that can teach us from your word, that can seek you in prayer, fasting, and and asking, God, what is it you would have of us? Would you send us these men? God, would you send us servants and shepherds for your honor and glory? And we thank you for our chief shepherd and our chief servant, Jesus Christ, who leads us into your truth, who humbled himself taking the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death, took to the cross to bear our shame, that we might be forgiven of our sin. Thank you. Lord Jesus, we do all these things in honor of you, and we pray all these things in the hope that you will be honored and glorified in our church. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.